Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 111. Today's big Bible question is, how did Jesus abolish death? So happy Saturday, brothers and sisters. Today's Bible passages include Leviticus 22, Psalms 28 and 29, Ecclesiastes 4, and 2 Timothy 1. Sharp-eared listeners probably noticed yesterday that we skipped over Ecclesiastes 4 and went straight for 5. Today we rectify that mistake by reading chapter 4, and tomorrow we will go to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. I know that is confusing, and I feel like if Robert Murray McShane were still alive today, the author of our Bible reading plan, he would be quite disappointed in my performance, and I don't blame him. Our focus passage for today is from 2 Timothy 1, which actually contains all sorts of wonderful nuggets from Scripture. We could focus, for instance, on verse 12, which was fantastic, is fantastic, and was made into a song that I sang in my youth, which says, I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed, or believed, according to the song, and have persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me into that day. We could tie into our discussion yesterday on fear with verse 7, when Paul writes, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. We could talk about holding on to sound teaching and guarding it by the power of the Holy Spirit, as verses 13 and 14 say, Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. Or we could talk about how Paul imparted a spiritual gift to Timothy simply by the laying on of his hands, which is told to us in verse 6. Therefore, I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. But as great as all those passages might be, we're actually going to focus on verses 9 and 10, which is one of those short passages in the Bible that are miles and miles deep, even though they're really compact. It's one of the briefest yet deepest and most theological summaries of the gospel or the good news in the entire Bible. And that verse, those verses go like this. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So, Let's go read the whole chapter in total, all of 2 Timothy 1, even though you know we just actually read several big chunks of it, but it's quite helpful to read it all fully in context to understand what's going on. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will, for the sake of the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my dearly loved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience as my ancestors did when I constantly remember in you, you in my prayers night and day. Remembering your tears, I long to see you so that I may be filled with joy. I recall your sincere faith that first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice and now I am convinced is in you also. Therefore I remind you to rekindle the gift of God that is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. So don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. 
He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald, apostle, and teacher, and that is why I suffer these things. But I am not ashamed, because I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to guard what has been entrusted to me unto that day. Hold on to the pattern of sound teaching that you have heard from me, and the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Guard the good deposit through the Holy Spirit who lives in us, You know that all those in the province of Asia have deserted me, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, because he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. On the contrary, when he was in Rome, he diligently searched for me and found me. May the Lord grant that he obtain mercy from him on that day. You know very well how much he ministered at Ephesus. There are some giant diamonds of truth in that passage. Uh, Even just in verses 9 through 10, what do we see there? So we see that God has saved us and called us. He didn't save us because of our good deeds or our goodness, but by his intentional choice and grace. Salvation begins in the heart of God, not the mind of man. When did God decide to extend grace to us? Well, verses 9 and 10 tell us, before time began. That's a long time ago. How did God decide to extend grace to us? In the person of Jesus. His plan, which Paul says other places was a mystery in the past times, was made realized and obvious by the appearance, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So what did Jesus do according to 2 Timothy uh, chapter 1, verses 9 and 10? Well, number one, he abolished death. Kind of an interesting Greek word there for abolish. It means Jesus rendered death inoperable, ceased it, made it stop working, undid it, caused it to no longer function. Now, how did he do this? By he himself overcoming death. Remember his promise in John 14, 19, because I live, you too will live. Yes, believers in Christ will still die. That is, if he doesn't return soon, but that death doesn't work anymore. It doesn't end things. It doesn't cease lives. Now, progressive revelation is a principle of hermeneutics or Bible interpretation that shows how the Bible truths, covenants, commands, etc. progress over time from Genesis through Revelation. Remember Luke chapter 24, for instance. Jesus was with Cleopas and his friend on the Emmaus Road, and then Jesus with the disciples in the locked room. In that chapter, Uh, Jesus explained to the disciples and to Cleopas and his buddies how all the scriptures that were written in the Old Testament concerning himself pointed to Jesus. The appearance of Jesus, in other words, brought the Old Testament messianic prophecies into much clearer understanding as he fulfilled each one of those prophecies. In other words, New Testament believers had more revelation than Old Testament ones. They knew more about the nature and character of God and his commands in the future because of the ministry of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles. Now, this is especially true of life after death and the eternal fate of those who have trusted in Jesus. There's definitely hope for an afterlife in the Old Testament, but because Jesus had not defeated death yet, it was kind of a foggy and unclear hope. Maybe you remember a couple of days ago when we read Ecclesiastes 3, 
Maybe you noticed that Solomon's conception of the afterlife was really not what you might have expected from the Bible. Well, the reason for this, of course, is that he was unfamiliar with what Jesus would do. He's hundreds of years before Jesus, and he was unfamiliar with how Jesus would overcome death and provide eternal life in him. So this is what we read in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 19. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? Well, here's the thing. Solomon was one of the wisest people in the Old Testament, But, as we just read, he had no idea what was going to happen after death. Now, once Jesus came and abolished death, it became much, much clearer because we have more revelation and more truth from him. Not only that, but Jesus also brought a much clearer focus on what is meant by eternal life and immortality. For instance, in John John 14, 1-3, he told his disciples, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. So in sum, Old Testament believers in God knew very little about what we would call the afterlife or even heaven. But even though God revealed to them many things, the coming of Jesus and his above abolishing of death revealed far more and shine light on eternal life, eternal hope, immortality in the heavenly kingdom of God. Now Spurgeon has a wonderful answer to the question of how Jesus abolished death. So let's close out with a few paragraphs from Brother Charles Spurgeon, who says, Let us remember that death is an enemy to be destroyed. Remember that our Lord Jesus Christ has already wrought a great victory upon death, so that he has delivered us from lifelong bondage through its fear. He has not yet destroyed death, but he has gone very near to it, for we are told that he has abolished death and have brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. This surely must come very near to having destroyed death altogether. In the first place, our Lord has subdued death in the very worst sense by having delivered his people from spiritual death. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Once you had no divine life whatsoever, but the death of original depravity remained upon you, and so you were dead to all godly and spiritual things. But now, beloved, the Spirit of God, even he that raised up Jesus Christ from the dead, has raised you up into newness of life, and you have become new creatures in Christ Jesus. In this sense, death has been subdued. Our Lord in his lifetime also conquered death by restoring certain individuals to life. There were three memorable cases in which at his bidding the last enemy, death, resigned his prey. Our Lord went into the ruler's house and saw the little girl who had lately fallen asleep in death, around whom they wept and lamented. He heard their scornful laughter when he said, She is not dead but sleeping, And he put them all out and said to her, Child, arise. Then was the spoiler spoiled and the dungeon door set open. He stopped the funeral procession 
at the gates of Nain where they were carrying a young man, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And he said, Young man, I say unto you, Arise. When that young man set up and our Lord delivered him to his mother, then again was the prey taken from the mighty enemy. Chief of all, when Lazarus had laid in the grave so long that his sister said, Lord, by this time he stinks, when in obedience to the word, Lazarus come forth, he came forth the raised one with his grave clothes still wrapped around him, yet really alive. Then was death seen to be the subservient to the Son of Man. Loose him and let him go, said the conquering Christ, and death, death's bonds were removed, for the lawful captive was delivered. When at the Redeemer's resurrection, many of the saints arose and came out of their graves into the holy city, then was the crucified Lord proclaimed to be victorious over death in the grave. Still, brothers, these were but preliminary skirmishes and mere foreshadowings of the grand victory by which death was overthrown. The real triumph was achieved upon the cross. When Christ died, says Spurgeon, he suffered the penalty of death on the behalf of all his people, and therefore no believer now dies by way of punishment for sin, since we cannot dream that a righteous God would twice exact the penalty for one offense. Death, since Jesus died, is not a penal infliction or a punishment infliction upon the children of God. As such, as such he has abolished it, and it can never be enforced. Why do the saints die then? Why, because their bodies must be changed before they can enter heaven. Flesh and blood, as they are, cannot inherit the kingdom of God, says the Bible. A divine change must take place upon the body before it will be fit for incorruption and glory. And death and the grave are, as it were, the refining pot and the furnace by the means uh, by means of which the body is made ready for its future bliss. Death, it is true, thou art not yet fully destroyed, but our living Redeemer has so changed you that you are no longer death, but something other than your name. Saints die not now, but they are dissolved and depart. Death is the loosing of the cable that the bark may freely sail to the fair heavens. Bark there meaning like a boat, B-A-R-Q-U-E. Death is the fiery chariot in which we ascend to God. It is the gentle voice of the great king who comes into his banqueting hall and says, Friend, come up higher. Behold, on eagle's wings we mount. We fly far from this land of mist and cloud into the eternal serenity and brilliance of God's own house above. Yes, our Lord has abolished death. The sting of death is sin, and our great substitute has taken that sting away by his great sacrifice. Stingless, death still remains among the people of God, but it so little harms them that to them it is not death to die. Further, Christ vanquished death and thoroughly overcame him when he rose. What a temptation! One has to paint a picture of the resurrection, but I will not be led aside to attempt more than a few touches. When our great champion awoke from his brief sleep of death and found himself in the withdrawing room of the grave, he quietly proceeded to put off the garments of the tomb. How leisurely he proceeded. He folded up the napkin on his face and placed it by itself that those who lose their friends might wipe their eyes there with it. And then he took off the winding sheet and laid the grave clothes by themselves that they might be there when his saints came in so that the chamber might be well furnished and the bed ready sheeted and prepared for their rests. The sepulcher is no longer an empty vault. 
a dreary charnel, but a chamber of rest, a dormitory furnished and prepared, hung with the arras which Christ himself has bequeathed. It is now no more a damp, dark, dreary prison. Jesus has changed all of that. Spurgeon is saying, Death and the grave are no longer places where people perish and rot, but now they're places where people rest and then in a moment are translated into the heavenly kingdom. The angel from heaven rolled away the throne, says Spurgeon, the stone from our Lord's sepulcher and let in the fresh air and light again upon our Lord, and he stepped out more than a conqueror. Death had fled, the grave had surrendered. Well, brethren, as surely as Christ rose, so did he guarantee as an absolute certainty the resurrection of all his saints into a glorious life for their bodies, the life of their souls never having paused even for a moment. In this he conquered death, and since that memorable victory, every day Christ is overcoming death, for he gives his spirit to his saints, and having that spirit within them, they meet the last enemy of death without alarm. Often they confront him with songs, Perhaps more frequently they face him with calm countenance and fall asleep with peace. I will not fear you, death, and why should I? You look like a dragon, but your sting is gone. The teeth are broken, O old lion. Where should I fear you? I know you are no more able to destroy me, but you are sent as a messenger to conduct me to the golden gate wherein I shall enter and see my Savior's unveiled face forever and ever. Amen to that. Nobody turns a phrase like Brother Charles Spurgeon. Leviticus chapter 22 verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses, tell Aaron and his sons to deal respectfully with the holy offerings of the Israelites that they have consecrated to me, so they do not profane my holy name. I am the Lord. Say to them, If any man from any of your descendants throughout your generations is in a state of uncleanness yet approaches the holy offerings that the Israelites consecrate to the Lord, that person will be cut off from my presence. I am the Lord. No man of Aaron's descendants who has a skin disease or a discharge is to eat from the holy offerings until he is clean. Whoever touches anything made unclean by a dead person or by a man who has an emission of semen or whoever touches any swarming creature that makes him unclean, or any person who makes him unclean, whatever is uncleanness, the man who touches any of these will remain unclean until evening, and is not to eat from the holy offerings unless he has bathed his body with water. When the sun is set, he will become clean, and then he may eat from the holy offerings, for that is his food. He must not eat an animal that died naturally or was mauled by wild beasts, making himself unclean by it. I am the Lord. They must keep my instruction or they will be guilty and die because they profane it. I am the Lord who sets them apart. No one outside a priest's family is to eat the holy offering. A foreigner staying with a priest or hired worker is not to eat the holy offering. But if a priest purchases someone with his own silver, that person may eat it, and those born in his house may eat his food. If the priest's daughter is married to a man outside a priest's family, she is not to eat from the holy contributions. But if the priest's daughter becomes widowed or divorced, has no children, and returns to her father's house, as in her youth, she may share her father's food, but no outsider may share it. If anyone eats a holy offering in error, he is to add a fifth to its value and give the holy offering to the priest. The priest must not profane the holy offerings the Israelites give to the Lord by letting the people eat their holy offerings and have them having them bear the penalty of restitution. For I am the Lord who sets them apart. The Lord spoke to Moses, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the Israelites, and tell them, 
Any man of the house of Israel or of the resident aliens in Israel who presents his offering, whether they present payment of vows or free will gifts to the Lord as burnt offerings, must offer an unblemished male from the cattle, sheep, or goats in order for you to be accepted. You are not to present anything that has a defect because it will not be accepted on your behalf. When a man presents a fellowship sacrifice to the Lord to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering from the herd or flock, it has to be unblemished to be acceptable. There must be no defect in it. You are not to present any animal to the Lord that is blind, injured, maimed, or has a running sore, festering rash, or scabs. You may not put any of them on the altar as a food offering to the Lord. You may sacrifice a, as a free will offering any animal from the herd or flock that has an elongated or stunted limb, but it is not acceptable as a vow offering. You are not to present to the Lord anything that has bruised, crushed, torn, or severed testicles. You must not sacrifice them in your land. Neither you nor a foreigner are to present food to your God from any of these animals. They will not be accepted for you because they are deformed and have a defect. The Lord spoke to Moses, When an ox, sheep, or goat is born, it is to remain with its mother for seven days. From the eighth day on, it will be acceptable as an offering, a food offering to the Lord. But you are not to slaughter an animal from the herd or flock on the same day as its young. When you offer a thanksgiving sacrifice to the Lord, offer it so that you may be accepted. It is to be eaten on the same day. Do not let any of it remain until the morning. I am the Lord. You are to keep my commands and do them. I am the Lord. You must not profane my holy name. I must be treated as holy among the Israelites. I am the Lord who sets you apart, the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. Psalm chapter 28, verse 1. Lord, I call to you, my rock, do not be deaf to me. If you remain silent to me, I will be like those going down to the pit. Listen to the sound of my pleading when I cry to you for help, when I lift up my hands towards your holy sanctuary. Do not drag me away with the wicked with the evildoers who speak in friendly ways with their neighbors while malice is in their hearts. Repay them according to what they have done, according to the evil of their deeds. Repay them according to the work of their hands. Give them back what they deserve, because they do not consider what the Lord has done or the work of his hands. He will tear them down and not rebuild them. Blessed be the Lord, for he has heard the sound of my pleading. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him and I am helped. Therefore my heart celebrates, and I give thanks to him with my song. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is a stronghold of salvation for his anointed. Save your people, bless your possession, shepherd them, and carry them forever. Psalm 29 Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is above the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord above the vast water, the voice of the Lord in power, the voice of the Lord in splendor, the voice of the Lord breaks the cedars, the Lord shatters the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the woodlands bare. In his temple all cry glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned, king forever. The Lord gives his people strength. The Lord blesses his people with peace.
Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed, for they have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. So I commended the dead who have already died more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. I saw that all the labor and skillful work is due to one person's jealousy of another. This too is futile in a pursuit of the wind. The fool folds his arms and consumes his own flesh. Better one handful with rest than two handfuls with effort in a pursuit of the wind. Again, I saw futility under the sun. There is a person without a companion, without even a son or brother, and though there is no end to all his struggles, his eyes are still not content with riches. Who am I struggling for, he asks, and depriving myself of good things? This, too, is futile and a miserable task. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their efforts. For if either falls, his companion can lift him up, but pity the one who falls without another to lift him up. Also, if two lie down together, they can keep warm, but how can one person alone keep warm? And if someone overpowers one person, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not easily broken. Better is a poor but wise youth than an old but foolish king who no longer pays attention to warnings. For he came from prison to be king, even though he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who move about under the sun follow a second youth who succeeded him. There is no limit to all the people who were before them, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. This too is futile and a pursuit of the wind. Well, brothers and sisters, what Solomon saw as futile, we see with better eyes because we see through Christ. We see through the victory of Christ over the grave, his abolishing of death, and his promise of resurrection for all who are in him. May the good news of Jesus comfort you, May the word of God edify you and build you up. May his presence go with you. May he bless you and keep you. Good day and Godspeed.